So welcome to the Informed Simplicity Project, a place for students seeking the informed simplicity on the far side of complexity. Today I have a colleague of mine, Julia Conroy, who I'm super excited to have on today. She's doing research that I think is the forefront um, of the field. And before we get into that, I want to give you an opportunity, Julia, to say hello and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Jordan. I'm a fan of the work, so I'm honored to be a part of it. Um, and so, like you said, my name is Julia Conroy. I'm currently in LAC, uh, operating out of Arkansas, um, but I'm also getting my doctoral degree in counselor education and supervision from the University of Arkansas. You're going to be done like any day now, right? I don't know about that. But, uh, <laughs> they seem to be getting longer and longer. <laughs> but hopefully 2021, they'll give me the, the funny hat and the puppy sleeves. Puppy sleeves. When do you, do, when, when do you become um, ABD? <laughs> um, I'm looking to do comps uh, in the fall um, and then propose in, in the fall as well. Is it, am I sending you back? <laughs> no, it's just that that's fast. I mean, I feel like you've been blazing through. How many credit hours is your is your program? Um, I'll finish with 72. Which is, I think that's more than I did. Wow. Um, so how did you get into the field? How did you become a, a counselor? Yeah, so I think my interest really sparked um, I grew up, as ironic as it is, um, doing summer camp counseling. Um, I loved, loved being a counselor, loved the camp setting. Um, but the part that always left me unsettled was especially, I had several campers disclose instances um, of abuse or neglect at home, um, needing to report those um, to the appropriate authorities dependent on where they lived. And I think just knowing I wanted to do so much more for them than I was able to in that setting, knowing the, the great need that was there um, initially sparked my interest in, in this field. And then you got your master's as an MFT? Uh, actually as an, um, as an uh, for counseling as an LIC. So your degree is not an MFT degree? No. Wow. Yeah, so I don't do any couples work officially on the record, but I do offer relational work. <laughs> oh my gosh the semantics of the field <laughs> um okay i just i thought that you had an an, an mft degree but you were licensed as, as an lac no the the university of arkansas doesn't do any mft degree is that where you went for your undergrad i mean for mm -hmm. your uh, grad mm -hmm. so you've been at that things. program the whole time yeah did you know all of your professors then or yeah, it was a lot of the same overlap, and I think, honestly, kind of ties into, you know, the research interests that I have. None of my professors really shared that interest, but I think with the relationship that we've built up over the years is kind of like, we'll throw in what we know, but <laughs> we, we trust you, and we're going to pull in the people that we can at the university, and so those relationships there and the, the trust that they've shown and kind of being willing to branch out and do something different, I, I've been really thankful for. Look, let's, let's, let's dive into that. You know, at the end of every episode, I ask people what they think is on the forefront of the field. Mm. And if you were to ask me what I thought was at the forefront of the field, I would say your work, like what you're, what you're doing, I think is 
future. So I'm, I've always, I've obviously been trying to leech off of you as much as possible. Oh, gosh. Um, but I think the question is, tell us, like, what are you, what are you doing? What's your dissertation going to, going to be about? So what I'm looking to do is really measure within the context of couples doing that relational work, um, taking measurements on blood pressure, heart rate, and skin, skin conductance um, over a period of eight sessions um, for an hour each and seeing what changes do we see, um, of course, over time, but more closely looking at the level of synchrony that occurs between them over those sessions um, as we're looking to create bonding moments between them, what level um, of change is that having on the way that they physiologically relate and connect with one another? Yeah. So looking at how when couples sync mm -hmm. in moments of pain, mm -hmm. how that then relates to change. Is that is that sort of how it is or is that Absolutely, because what, what we see is, you know, couples can come, typically when couples come in, they are synced in the fact that they're both pretty frustrated, right? They're both pretty elevated. Um, even if that um, elevation looks different for both of them, something isn't going well. Um, so they're pretty synced initially. And then what we see kind of as we uh, start the counseling process, there can kind of be this out of sync um, moments that take place or where they just get off um, for one another, that there's more of this reactive push and pull. Um, so when they're able to sync during the moments of pain, when my lows correspond with your lows, uh, the way that our bodies communicate on a subconscious level has an extremely regulating effect um, that, that really stabilizes where we are emotionally. I think the craziest thing about what you've said, and you've said this before, but I've never had the opportunity to just drill into your brain, is that when couples come in and they're escalated, they're angry, they're irritated, they're already in a form of, of synchrony. What is, like, can you unpack that a little? Like, I, I don't even, because I would think the opposite. I would think that they're uns, that they are not synced. Mm -hmm. until they're in those moments of like deep connection that you're saying that right so. which makes sense but even um when we talk about sinking what we're really saying is when i'm up you're up okay. um and that's the sinking that's typically present um that maybe there's a lot of reactivity a lot of fighting a lot of yelling um that when i know something's about to be brought up my body's already amping up um, knowing that we're coming here, knowing that we're going to sort through all these fights, like I'm already getting elevated when I'm in the room because we're both nervous, we're both anxious, we're both mad, um, that no, we're not in sync emotionally um, in those hard places, but we're typically synced to some degree in our secondary reactive emotion from those primary responses. Is that also true for... Like, is that only true for people who are in close relationships? Like, I think about couples and families, right? Like, and people can almost, almost mind read each other in like families. Mm -hmm. But if, I don't know, if I'm meeting a stranger off the street and then they are elevated, like, does it automatically pull me as well? Or is it, 
Sure. I think what research shows us is it has far less of an impact on us without kind of those uh, attachment bonds or connections um, that I'm far more impacted um, by someone's synchrony that, that has value to me and has that significance um, in my life that I'm far more impacted that the depth to which they can regulate me um, when they join me in my moments of pain has a far more significant impact. And I think that even extends to the way that I personally see my role um, as a clinician, that even my moments of regulation, they feel good in the moment and I can get down in there with them in the moment, but it means so much more for them to be joined by their person, um, to be joined by a parent or a partner in those places than it does for someone that they're paying to see. Um, that just has a different level of, of regulatory capacity. And that's why I think it's so important to include that relational work. So what did, um, I think, can I play devil's advocate for a little bit? Is that okay? Absolutely, please do. How do you then measure that, right? Like, like, how do we know that, that happens? How do we know that there's a level of, of synchrony? Is this, because most research that I know, people aren't being hooked up to uh, heart rate monitors. People aren't being hooked up to blood pressure cuffs or whatever. So how do, how do we know? Absolutely. And so you bring up two really good points here. One is, um, the way that this synchrony is being measured. Um, some of it, it kind of depends on what research you're looking at. Some of it is looking at brain waves, the brain waves that are released um, and what that's like. But a lot of those measurements can be distracting within the process. Obviously, if I'm hooked up um, to that, the with this like helmet on my head with, you know, things hooked up everywhere. That, that's pretty distracting uh, for anybody in any setting. Um, and so what we're really hoping to do um, is, is we know how the body regulates during moments of emotional distress. Very similar to the way that the body prepares for a physical threat. Um, the way that the blood rushes from the brain um, and into the body, um, kind of into the limbs to, to be ready to mobilize in that sense that the heart rate picks up to make sure that the blood is getting there at an appropriate pace, um, that there's kind of this stress level that comes over, to the over the body to make sure it can be mobilized in the way that it needs to. Um, so what we're hoping to say is what impact does, do these regulatory processes have ultimately um, on this natural threat response that we know is there. And um, that taking these measurements can be far less inhibiting to the process, but how do they mitigate the body's natural response to threat um, in revealing more emotional regulation and stabilization in those moments? Okay. So this is, sounds like this is sort of new territory, like the science seems to point in this direction, but we haven't seen it yet. Yeah, we're, we're getting there. Um, there are definitely, this isn't the, the first time this has been proposed by any stretch, um, but there is a lot out there of 
what are ways that we can look at this synchrony. Um, but I think that the point that uh, is established right now in literature is things go well when we're synced, when there's this co-regulatory effect, couples, um, whether they're romantic partners, whether they're parent-child, that things tend to go better when there's this level of regulation, that there's more satisfaction in the relationship, that things go better. I think the, the point of research that that obviously begs the question um, in my mind is how can we create the, that sense of co-regulation when that isn't necessarily present? Yeah. Um, we have a lot of research that says this is a good thing that shows even couples doing like a problem solving activity when they're synced up, things go better, they're more successful, this is a good thing. Okay, what if we don't automatically have that natural physiological sinking? Does that mean hope is lost for all these other people that don't, uh, for whatever reason, have that? Um, and so what I want to do is say, okay, what are some methods that we can establish um, and look at those numbers to say this is a way to develop the level of synchrony that we know leads to um, more successful, more empathic, more attuned relationships. Uh, as, you're, as you're talking about this, it almost sounds like you're looking for like a way to, to do couples biofeedback. That, that's the hope, that's the hope. <laughs> in, a, in a very uh, twisted way um, that, yeah, I think it's a beautiful thing. And it's honestly shaped even me personally of the way that I find myself regulating uh, myself when I have my partner there, um, that it, it can be just so grounding. And so I think putting forth the power that having this shared experience and this co-regulation can have, I think is so important. And I think ultimately, big picture where I see this going is, I hope this matters to insurance companies. I hope that they see the, the physiological effects that this can have um, so that there's more value attributed to relational work um, so that can have a new level of insurance coverage if we're able to establish with hard numbers uh, the impacts that this can have, not just on emotional, uh, marital satisfaction, but also even the physical um, manifestations that a, a stressful relationship can have. And so your guiding theory for this is polyvagal theory. Yes. What, why did you choose that instead of attachment theory and granted the two sort of I mean in some ways I'm like these theories are kissing cousins <laughs> you know? um, no, they, but, they're very complementary yeah um, I think you see a lot of leading voices in the field really speak to the the relationship and how they complement one another so what polyvagal theory puts forth um, is that there are different branches of the vagal nerve that runs from our brain through um, our torso and into our gut. Um, and one of these branches um, is kind of responsible, just for like a frame of reference, is responsible for that freeze response that we talk about that comes up a lot with when we're talking about really severe trauma that gets stored in the body. Um, another branch of this response um, talks about the, the social engagement system. 
um, or the ventral vagal complex. That's kind of the, the more technical term. I like social engagement system um, because it really speaks to what this branch of the vagal nerve does. Um, and so what it does is, is it's activated when we're in deep, um, meaningful kind of connection with somebody else and has a very regulating effect on the body. It activates that parasympathetic uh, nervous system that allows that more calming sense of the body to come. Um, and so basically by using polyvagal theory, um, we're pulling on this knowledge put forth um, by Porges in saying, when we're able to engage with someone socially, that has a regulating effect on the body, which leads um, to this uh, more stable experience of whatever's going on for that person. Um, and this has been established in a lot of other places. Um, uh, one, I think one of my favorite articles in, in talking about this uh, was put out by Butler and Randall all the way back in 2013, but talks about with with more emotional synchrony between couples comes this stabilization. Ultimately, as we're able to get in sync, then we're better able to stabilize together as well. And you're using that instead of attachment theory, just because you think it's, it's, it speaks more to the physiology. Mm -hmm. I think it, um, gosh, I don't really see, I just see them as so complementary, but I do think sometimes that attachment theory is obviously groundbreaking, was in so many ways. And I really just see this being the natural extension of the way that attachment theory plays out physiologically. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird thing. Um, and you obviously know more about this than I do. But when I watch Porges and he says, it's not quite attachment. And then I hear the attachment people speak, um, it seems to be sort of a strange dichotomy that they're making in some ways. Like they talk, at least from what I understand, they, they talk about it as attachment theories about working models of self and other. So it's almost like more intrapsychic, whereas polyvagal theory seems to be more based in like the physiology of the, of the nervous system. Mm -hmm. So, but I, I mean, I don't know. It's just my outside perspective looking in. Yeah. And I think obviously, uh, this is the beauty of having more accessibility to research than we ever have before is we can hear those trusted voices and we can hear kind of how that's developing and, and make conclusions and, and kind of piece together these, these parts of us, this for ourselves, um, of, of how we see this lining up, but most importantly, how we see this playing out in the room with the client. Um, and, and so I think, where attachment um, kind of needs to be extended maybe in some ways is, okay, what, what um, deeper impact do, do these attachment messages, whether they're relating to my internal working model or the way that I see other and this view of other, what messages does that encode in the body and how is that made manifest? Um, and I think that polyvagal is, is the best explanation that I've seen and physiologically anyway of, of how that can be put together. How much of this is, so um, here's another devil's advocate question that I'm going to ask, which is not, it's not fair. Um, how much of this 
is measurable, right? Like it, when I look at the research on physiology, when I look at the research on outcomes, it seems to be as though, it, it seems to me that you can measure um, how, how well things are going up to a point, mm -hmm. right? And so like the classic example of this is you have a client who, who comes in and they say, I'm doing better, but this, <laughs> this, this thing isn't quite right. And if you were to give them a measure of functioning, they might even score well above the cutoff, right? So that they, according to whatever measure you're, you're using, they're fine. Um, and so I guess the question is to what level can we actually measure these things? Um, even, you know, like I've, I've heard stories of, um, phys of physicians monitoring like stress levels and they go, technically your levels of cortisol are within the normal range. So we know, so we know that you're not like super off, all out of your mind stressed, but you're still reporting that you're not okay. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how, how specific can we actually get with a lot of these mm -hmm. measures? Absolutely. And I think, um, this is kind of the beauty and maybe some frustrating points of, uh, our field of, I, I can think of very few clinicians that, when you ask them why they're doing this, they're like, oh, I love the hard concrete numbers. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like that's really my, my bread and butter here. Uh, but as clinicians, there's some part of us that just is so drawn into the ambiguity of it. Yeah. Um, that no, we can't have hard measures to these things, but there's just something so compelling about that too where it's like, okay, even if I don't have, walk away right from this dissertation with a perfect understanding, I do walk away with a little bit better understanding of, of how to get closer. And I, I, in no stretch am I like, okay, there's an end point to this where I'm perfectly satisfied with the way that we're measuring this. But I think that is what makes it so alluring too, is I think it's so worth the continued effort toward it. Um, and I think that that's the beautiful part and the, the frustrating part that we kind of hold that tension um, that makes us want to keep trying. Um, that makes it worth the effort, even if we're not going to have something concrete at the end of it. But I do think um, I uh, I do kind of like any black and white that I can have. Um, so I think that's, <laughs> you know, being in full honesty. Um, and so I think that that's kind of what appealed to me about the physiology as well of like, we know that we have these measurements down. Um, we know that we can take an accurate heart rate. We know that we can take accurate blood pressure. Um, and, and so how can we use this data that is concrete and that is certain and that is black and white to make some interpretations of what this is saying about is going on beneath the surface and maybe even below our level of awareness. Yeah. Hmm. So you sound very hopeful. I, oh, I hate the hopeful because it sounds like, oh, you're naive in ways, but I am. I <laughs> But I know I am. <laughs> and that's, that's, I think, um, I, I know that I'm not going to get everything that I'm hoping to find. 
right out of this dissertation and and I'm okay with that because I think the questions are so worth asking. Um, I know that dead ends will come. I don't know what all of those are yet, but I think as a clinician, I'm so driven to get a clearer picture of what's going on beneath the surface for my client. Um, because I'm convinced the clearer I get on that picture of what's going on for them, the clearer I can adjust and attune more effectively to really meet their needs. Um, and, and to get more clear on that picture means I, I'm finding a more direct route to attuning where they are. Um, and I think that's the part that feels so hopeful to me and that is so aware that I have so much more room and always well to grow in that respect. Yeah, I don't think it's naive at all. I think you're really, um, what's the word? I read a little bit of history and um, I think a lot about learning and the knowledge process. And one of the things that you see pretty repeatedly is that people make a lot of great big break breakthroughs by just looking where other people won't look. Mm -hmm. And that's what I see you doing. I mean, in some meetings, I think that you're just an explorer who said, look, we have this huge body of knowledge about physiology. We have this huge body of knowledge about healthy relationships. Let's actually look at these two things um, together. And I mean, I think that's, it's the future you know what I mean like I think I think that's the thing to that we all need to be doing mm -hmm. and so I don't think it's naive I think it's really smart well and I think there is so much of this kind of division within how we think about caring for people and I think the more time I spend in the field the more I find myself advocating for no this is so much more than that this is a holistic sense of self and if we look for ways to bridge those gaps um, that's going to encourage our clients to do the same um, and to see themselves as integrated beings instead of this is me taking care of my physical health this is me taking care of my mental health um, if we're able to kind of find the overlap there and to implement that into the way that we practice um, that's also going to send messages to our clients of how they can better create this holistic care for themselves and, and the lives that they want to be leaving. Yeah. Um, so look, let's say that um, you graduate in 2021, right? And I won, I won the lottery. And so I said, okay, <laughs> Dr. Dr. Conroy, I won, I'm going to give you $10 million I want you to build the ideal um, therapy clinic and use all the stuff that you've already done and studied and learned and put it into action. What would that therapy clinic look like? Like, would people be hooked up to stuff? How would they, how would clinicians use those? I don't know. Instruments. Well, one, congratulations on your lottery win. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you need to check with your wife before you offer it my way. That's, that's uh, probably true. <laughs> that's probably true. But honored for any yeah. piece I could get. But I think when I think about that, I, the first thing that came to mind was, I need to make a lot of phone calls or, or Zoom calls. You know, <laughs> for the current state of things. Of, I, I need to be really uh, 
I think this is the biggest piece when I think about next steps forward is how can we integrate what's already there? I think, um, you know, I've talked a little bit about this, of, of leading people in the field tend to be very confident in the way that they are leading the field. Yeah. Um, and at times that comes of, of, at this risk of not having these greater conversations of how we can be building on that work. Right. Um, so the first thing that comes to mind, if, if I'm getting all this money that you want, um, is how can I talk to people about what they're already doing? Um, more specifically, they don't like post that thing on a website um, so that I can build on that in a different way. And so I think um, doing that too, in a way, it's pretty important to me, I think, to do that in a non-invasive way. I think in the research that I've been involved in, you see how much, you know, all the things that you hear about the halo effect, the Hawthorne effect, basically people not that performing maybe in a way that's authentic or feeling the need to perform. Um, so just vices as well. Yeah, all absolutely. Absolutely. And so as much as possible, I think continuing to seek out objective measurements. Um, that's why, again, the physiolo physiology appeals to me for so in so many ways, looking for objective measurements, but also non-obtrusive ways to really study the counseling process. Um, because a lot of what we're seeing come out now too, especially within the realm of neuroscience of looking at what's going on underneath the surface, we're kind of hearing secondhand. Um, or because we see this in neuroscience, maybe it means this for counseling. And so I think without that primary investigation, um, that can lead us down a lot of dangerous rabbit holes. Um, and so really looking to further our field in itself of how can I really look at the, the counseling relationship, 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 or the friendship, or the therapy in place here, and how can we do that better? with primary research, primary investigation, um, to make sure that we're not just um, going off of interpretations or extrapolations. I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> you know, I, I made a face because I think that's one of my big hangups then about neuroscience. Everyone wants to incorporate neuroscience, but you're really just making a leap. Some neuroscientist in a lab who's not a clinician says this, and you see something that you think is related, but really it's just a metaphor. You don't know. We don't know. We don't Absolutely. know. Speaking and maybe it's it. true, but we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> we're, so we're rolling out a new class at the university in the fall uh, called Neuroinformed Counseling. Um, and one of the assignments that I've set in place is to read kind of a pop neuroscience book that's, you know, a national bestseller. And the students have to take two articles that are referenced in the book and analyze how is the book author using this and interpreting this data and how, um, how true is it staying to what the neuroscience intended or the neuroscientists intended this research to be used for? How big of a jump is that? Um, and how can we kind of caution that same behavior in ourselves? Because it is really tempting to, to make these generalizations and to say, this is how this works now. We've solved it. Um, but until those tests are really run 
um, in a therapy setting and in a counseling setting, we, we can't really say that with certainty. Yeah, I, yeah, so true. Even, I, I haven't done that, but I've, I've read a lot of the primary, like actual research studies from a lot of different books. And I'm like, this is, you have massively overplayed your hand, you know, even, <laughs> and like it's on, on one hand, I don't even want to say anything, so I don't want to call people out. But on the other hand, it's like, if you actually read the, read the research, if you actually just read the actual articles, you know, I think, yeah, I'm not going to call anybody out. But it's just like, have you read? Like, it was, it's crazy. You actually read the research article. It'd be easy to do. And that's what we're seeing now, too, in counseling um, articles, like, in order to get anything relevant to neuroscience being published, they say they'll toss out any secondary research that you have. And they'll say, look for the primary source. What is it? What are they actually saying about this? Do you really think that this can apply? And so it's really important that we have you know, journals like that set in place that are kind of monitor um, what gets kind of shared with the public to ensure that that is staying true to the primary research and not just what we'd like it to say. Um, Because that fits well with already what I'm already doing or this sounds similar to this. um, Because there there are dangers in that of of misinterpreting that and and making research say whatever uh, kind of suits our, our needs for it. To go back to what you were saying earlier about the, unobtrus- the unobtrusiveness, it almost sounds like you're trying to, uh, you know, um, take Gottman a level further. I mean, Gottman does did some phenomenal research, incredible stuff, and his and you know he did it he did it in a time where we didn't have the technology that we have now, mm-hmm. right? Where you had to hook people up to sensors and skin conduct, you know, you know, they just were so loaded down. And it sounds like you really want it to just be seamless, to be wireless like, in a way, just like, you know. Mm-hmm. And because I think that that's, um, and I think that's a lot of the criticism that you hear in people trying to study these processes um, or studying the physiology or studying the neuroscience behind it is you, you lose the relationship. Um, you lose what makes you a himself person. says, I'm a Spock, like I'm a Vulcan. And like, you know, he's yeah. like, he's not. He's not trying to be anything he's not. He's not trying to be anything I think I, I, this is maybe a way that I see to hold both because everything that we see in neuroscience, um, everything that polyvagal theory says points to the relationship, points how absolutely necessary the relationship is. And, And so I don't really see this pulling away from that relationship and the way that we attune with clients and meet them where they are. But this is just another tool in our tool belt to help conceptualize and understand this is their experience right now. I understand what's going on for them right now. And because of that, I'm not trying to find this roadmap in my head. I can more clearly see them the way that they are. Look, let's just say um, my wife approves. We've given you $10 $10 million, right? You have your clinic. You've got John Gottman as a consultant. You got Stephen Porges as a consultant because you want everyone to be involved in giving you what they're doing, right? You have, I don't know, Sue Johnson as a consultant. Um, how, and, and you have, I don't know, military grade technology, right? So you can see through walls and see heart rate, you know, from a distance <laughs> and all that stuff. 
how how do you see clinicians using that information for their clients? Mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing that we see is when clients are getting activated, right? What, what we're finding physiologically as their body prepares for this threat response, blood is draining from the brain, right? It's totally, we're losing our higher order functioning. We're losing our executive functioning, even just for a second, as our body mobilizes to respond to the threat. And, and so understanding this and, and seeing this as valid and, and true in those moments helps us to say, okay, this might not be helpful to ask another question here that pulls on your cognition. As I see you getting activated, what's important here is just to focus in on where you are right now, to kind of call attention to that body awareness, to kind of, um, so, you know, I don't know how everyone feels about like the oversimplified hemispheric language, but okay, left hemisphere is kind of shut down for business right now. I really do just need to appeal to this right hemisphere. How do I do that? Let's use emotional language. Let's call attention to the body response. But what this allows us to do, knowing that this is what's going on beneath the surface, that moment by moment, as I'm getting more activated, I am further losing the capacity to put words to this experience. My expectations change. This isn't just my client trying to be difficult or being quiet or not. It's that the blood is, is kind of mobilizing elsewhere. And so how do I attune better in those moments? Call attention to what the body's doing in that moment. And as I do, as I regulate there, then the body is better able to restore into that equilibrium. So I'm able to do that processing that a lot of clinicians try to do when those parts of the brain are just kind of closed, closed up shop. And how will clinicians get that feedback? Like, do they have a watch that they're going to be watching every you know, or are they going to be reviewing their tapes? And so then they'll be able to say, okay, at timestamp 26, 27, mm -hmm. you know, husband took this breath, but his heart rate was through the roof. So that's your cue. Like, are like, how are you doing that? What in your, in your fantasy, what's the way that they would do that, that they would get that feedback? Yeah. And I do, I think, um, even the clinicians that are going to be running these experience, they're not going to have like a real time update. I think, um, but what my hope is, is that the, this is, the fact that this is the body's response, even in a counseling setting where my body knows that it's safe, knows that no like, imminent threat physically is coming, um, to know that the body still responds in this way just grounds the counselor. I'm not looking to have monitors on them all the time. I'm not looking to kind of pull away but I, I'm hoping that the clinicians will better round out their knowledge of what's going on for the clients in the, those moments so they can better stay grounded, they can better conceptualize moment to moment so that they can attune with the clients more effectively. Um, I don't think anybody needs to be like, uh, you know, set up with a heart rate monitor for every single session, but the more that this knowledge becomes mainstream and accepted, um, the more able our field is going to be to attune with those clients in those moments instead of dismissing those clients as um, autistic, instead of dismissing them as, you know, 
unable to label their emotional experience, labeling them is difficult. It's okay, I really understand what's better going on for them physiologically so that I can meet them in those stressful moments. I mean, I think that that's so true. You know, in some ways, the speed of learning is the speed of feedback. And so if you don't ever have a measure, it's really hard for you to learn that's what's going on for your clients. If you don't ever have a way to measure that the heart rate is at 100, which is, you know, um, uh, fight or flight, right, for most people, then you might not know what's actually going on for them. Which goes back to polyvagal theory in a way. Polyvagal talks about how your physiology, your physiological state determines your ability, to, your capacity to respond. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're at a, if you're over a hundred, you're not going to be able to have a calm, rational conversation. Mm-hmm. And some people are really good at 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 hiding that. Mm-hmm. I think of people who I've worked with who I think who were in the military, and I think you know for very good reasons that was a skill that they had to develop. But then when you're sitting with them in the therapy room, it's not helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, the ability to, to sort of shut down on the outside, but on the inside still be activated. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, um, I think, what's kind of missing right now of, of a really good snapshot of regardless of how it presents in the moment or sitting across from us by kind of mainstreaming this knowledge of what's going on physiologically we're going to be able to meet them there better um, in a true and genuine way that that aligns with their experience and, and isn't so dependent on kind of our interpretation or our prior experiences or, you know, especially in my case, my own reactivity of how dysregulated yeah. I feel in those moments um, usually comes into play more than anything else. So I find that my awareness of what's going on physiologically for the client that I will tell myself that and that helps me stay grounded in the moment um as I sense myself being like oh like say something like give me anything (laughs) um that I'm realizing gosh they're just in their own personal hell right now how I, I need to like stay grounded they're losing the ability to find words I need to stay grounded what what neurobiologically makes sense right now for me to meet them because I'm losing the the capacity to do it cognitively as their body responds. So how can I meet them here? That that has grounded me as a clinician more than anything else. So why these three measures? Why skin connectivity, heart rate, and blood pressure? I'm gonna be perfectly honest. I found the measurement tool that I think just so aligns with it. And I think those are the, it also takes body temperature and a few other measurements, but these are the mo- ones that most overlap with stress. Yeah. So the tool that we plan to use was um, initially designed for um, hospitalized patients with epilepsy to let them know when their body um, was you know, prepared to see so that they could get themselves in a place that was safe. Um, but as we saw the accuracy of this tool demonstrated time and time again, it started being used uh, for stress research um, and seeing how that played out over time. Um, so those are the three that, that I used. Um, obviously, we, we kind of talked about this before, heart rate and blood pressure, are. there's a lot of overlap there that's giving you a lot of the same information. 
Um, but really just see that as a confirming measurement that this really is what's going on in the body um, in that moment and some different ways to kind of, all three of them are different ways to say, okay, what's the body's stress response in these moments? What, what is skin conductivity? Mm -hmm. So we all know that feeling, right? When we're, maybe we're doing some laundry or we touch something and we just, or somebody else and we just get this level of shock that's like insurmountable um, and seems like it. And so basically uh, we constantly have an electrical current running over the surface of our skin um, at all times. Obviously we're not, you know, generating uh, anything with that. It's not a substantial amount when we think about how much electricity it's taking to power my computer right now or to keep our lights on or anything like that. Um, but what we do find is that when we are under moments of stress, that that skin conductance, that that electrical current increases. Um, as again, this is just another way our body mobilizes and prepares to respond to stress um, so that that increases during our, our stressful moments to kind of prepare us for action. Why, why, why does that increase? Um, so it basically uh, has to do with every, everything that our body does in response to stress is all geared toward um, being able to mobilize um, to fight or flight. Um, and so what that does is kind of, um, you know, when you're kind of in, maybe you're walking around in the dark and you kind of notice things more. You like kind of feel someone else. You start moving glowing. Through. You start glowing. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? No. Electricity is no. glowing from from your hands, so you can see stuff. Is that what you're saying? Do you not do that? I do don't. Do I that? don't do that. No. You're the only one. Um, so what that does? I'm not from Arkansas, so that's that's the thing. Now we've got it clear. Yeah. It's in Arkansas. It's something in the water here. It's in the water. Yeah. But but when we're walking in a dark room. You know, we can kind of sense if someone else is in the room with us, we can kind of sense when there's something right in front of us, even if it's pitch black. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the electrical current, um, the way that our body is uh, like kind of picks up on on that motion that other things give off of if they have a lot other electrical currents, um, that that kind of heightens our sensitivity and our ability to perceive what's in the room with us. Um, so it's really seen as uh, a safety measure. And that way is something that um, increases our mobilization to protect ourselves. Wow. There you go. That's crazy. I didn't know we can do that. <laughs> our body can do amazing things. It really can. It really can. Um, look, this is all fascinating stuff. I think it's the edge of the field. Um, but I also want to be respectful of your time. And so I guess my question is for you, um, if there was something you wanted people to sort of take away from the, physi the physiology of the field, something that you've learned as you studied physiology and how that relates to relation. Oh, I've got to ask one more question before we start to wrap up. When people are in these deep moments of pain, and they're regulating or and they're synchronizing mm -hmm. i'm assuming that when they're in these moments their 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 physiology is also going to be escalated i'm 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 assuming 
they like when they're angry and irritated, their physiology is mobilized and elevated, that the same thing's gonna happen when they're in these deep moments of, of pain. So what is going to be the difference? That's a great question. Um, and so again, this is what we're hoping to find. This is kind of what um, the theories lend us to believe that we're really hoping to put numbers to is obviously when you think about sharing your most painful moments, when you think about sharing your hardest places, those are stressful moments, right? Because that the pain that's there is just so overwhelming to so many parts of our system. So uh, obviously our, our bodies are gonna have a response there. And so what I'm hoping to show is that I'm elevated in this moment of deep pain and if someone is able to join me in that moment of deep pain in a way that they're even elevated themselves and we're synchronized there in, in my moment of pain, I'm better able to stabilize and to come down, even though I'm still considering that pain and, and how deep that is and how um, honestly excruciating that is and, and what we um, can extrapolate from the polyvagal theory is that, and, um, and from Butler and Randall's article, is that with that synchrony, with that co-regulation comes more stability. So yes, that doesn't take away my pain, but it changes my reactivity to it. The fact that I don't feel alone in it, that I'm not standing up under it by myself, that I'm able to regulate differently there and not be as physiologically um, activated, even though I consider this place, it's not as threatening for me in the same way, knowing that I'm not there alone. See, that's, that's what's fascinating is, so if couples come in and they are uh, escalated and there's already a level of synchrony. <laughs> so looking at measures like blood pressure and heart rate, those can still be high, right? Over a hundred. And then in these moments of deep pain, you could have the same physiological, physiolo physiological markers also be high, be at 100. But then it's somehow different. Yeah. And, and, and one so it sort of resolves and the other it sort of escalates or continues to escalate. Mm -hmm. And that's really, I'm hoping to get a better understanding too of the de-escalation process of really what's going on there uh, physiologically because we already have existing research that tells us we're, we're both escalated coming in. In our own ways, we're both escalated. We're not meeting one another. We're not synced. Um, and through that de-escalation, as you were kind of forming this narrative in the context of counseling, maybe as we get into some painful things for one partner, the other doesn't really feel ready to join them there um, at, off the bat that there's not this readiness of, I want to go where you're going, if that's going to be painful. Um, and, and so what we're kind of hoping to, to track is, what are some ways then that they find one another and get a better understanding of what that process is? So to return to my almost last question, if you were to leave us with something, what would you leave us with? Mm -hmm. You know, you're studying the side of the field that most of us don't don't study so what, what would you leave us with yeah I, I think um 
it's hard because there's so much to say around this but i think if i would just encourage everyone to find one piece um of a more holistic approach that appeals to them that aligns with them um, that they're interested in that it's really important um, to kind of latch in and to find out more about that um, because all it's not contradictory and ultimately looking into the physiology always helps us to better attune with the client and better understand their experience and so maybe what I'm talking about doesn't land and that's okay. But that's kind of the niche that I've found that helps me um, better attune to where clients are and better understand the process that they're having as they sit right in front of me. So even if that isn't for you, I would just encourage you to find something that does land because having this holistic approach can be so beneficial to our conceptualization of our clients. And we know that solid conceptualization skills helps prevent burnout, helps us to feel renewed and restored in our practice that can get so repetitive. Um, and so whatever that is for you would just encourage you um, to, to find that and to find that that sense of newness and that integration that, that does fit for you. Um, so what do you think is on the edge of the field? Oh, if man. you were to look I'm at the far edge, the far edge, I think you're on the edge, but if you were to look past that, what do you think is, is on the edge? Yeah, I think um, we touched on this earlier, but I think a lot, a lot, a lot needs to be done especially because of the prevalence of neuroscience. I'm doing air quotes, neuroscience that's out there <laughs> that's translating primary research or sometimes translating translations of, translations of primary research um, that really looking at maybe some of the most popular um, assumptions that clinicians are making in the field of neuroscience um, to really see how does this hold up in session? What are ways that we can measure this and validate this, especially as it becomes more mainstreamed? How can we be sure this is true and that this applies in this setting? Um, I think is, is really necessary, but is gonna take a lot of collaboration, like I said, a lot of um, creativity and how to do that. Well, Julia, thank you so much. It's been enlightening. Um, yeah, I just thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. After you do your after you, after you do the research, we'll have to have you back back on, and you can tell us all about it. Thanks so much for having me, Jordan. I think, um, especially in in the midst of of the weird uh, social isolation um, that we're having now, things like this are just so essential to keep us connected. You know, uh, um, so I really appreciate you being willing to do that and to sacrifice so much time and energy to make sure that people have a way to feel connected in the midst of this. So thank you. All right. Talk to you later.